All right, let's get into the Word of God. Chapter 33 tonight. Justin, would you mind reading? Yes, sir. And what translation are you using tonight? Uh, ESV. Okay. You want the whole chapter? Please. Ah, you destroyer, who you yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift it up, your, when you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar <coughs> gathers, as locusts leap. It is left upon. The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The travelers ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff, and you give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you, and the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Verse 13, Hear, you who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? All right, he, verse 15, everyone, in case someone's lost their place. Chapter 33, verse 15. Verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands, lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He, who he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighted the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Verse 20, Behold Zion, the city of our appointed place. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord is in majest and majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. Verse 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. 
your cords hang loose. They cannot be, they cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Wow. 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 <clears throat> nice. Don, would you pray, please? Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be back in your house again tonight. And thank you, Lord, for all those who are here and for your word. And Lord, I pray that you just give us insight into the truths that you want us to understand tonight. You know the needs of all that have been mentioned, sickness and traveling and all those things that are going on. Lord, we just ask and pray that you would uh, intervene and uh, show yourself faithful to us as you always have. Bless our time now together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> what makes this chapter so hard? Hi, sir. Welcome. We're in Isaiah chapter 33. What makes this ch chapter so hard? What are some of the things that stuck out to you? Well, who is he? You know, this whole chapter about. Okay. You assume it's Assyria, but. It... What else? Who's the traitor in verse one? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Question number one: Who's the traitor? Yeah. Do you feel like we're just going from thing to thing? Do you yeah. feel like yeah. right? You feel like it's very difficult to, to to follow the train, the author's train. Yeah. Um, when when are we breaking to? If, if we had to outline this, how many Roman numerals would be there? You know, how many times is he changing subjects and moving to a new person? <clears throat> Let's yeah. see if we can just identify a few of them. Start with verse 1. Woe to you, destroyer. Then verse 2. Lord, be gracious to us. Do you see a break or not? Yeah. <clears throat> Woe to you, destroyer. Never destroyed. You traitor. Never betrayed. When you have finished destroying, you will be destroyed. When you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Anybody have a note in your study Bible as to who that verse 1 is? Right, that seems to be the universal agreement on everyone that I read this week, that it's Assyria. What does that kind of remind us of? What, what might that remind us of? <coughs> because a lot of times our discussions, where do we, we, where do we take our discussions? Future. Oftentimes our discussions go to future. But what should that kind of ground you in in verse number one, the idea that he's talking to Assyria? He's talking to people of the day. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> that first and foremost, the text has a localized application in a particular daytime group. A localized application in a particular, and it's not today. It was a particular people group that he was referring to here. Woe to you, destroyer, never destroyed. <clears throat> Chris, what do you think about the, uh, the, the you will be destroyed? What, what, you think that's Babylon? The entity that's going to do that? Yeah, because eventually what does happen. Right. <clears throat> but first, Assyria, when it comes up against Jerusalem, loses a huge amount of its military might that it never really fully regained. 
So Syria, after the defeat in Jerusalem, really kept its reign going through fear instead of just straight military might. Okay. Eventually, Babylonia decided, yeah, let's do this. John. Yeah, King James. Commentary she answers says, hmm. Isaiah's final blow on Israel and Judah looks beyond the coming Assyrian invasion so the ultimate devastation will come on the land in the final days. Yeah. So a kind of a walk in the dog on two things in parallel. Yeah. Having it a conjunction now, but an application as well. (coughs) And of course, since that's the King James Study Bible... That's it right there, right? That's it. That's the authority. Yeah. Got a healthy amen out of Chris on that one. So, yeah. We did talk about that last week, though, which was the the idea that, again, a prophet receiving something from God um, can be a very strong thing. And even him being a spokesperson may not always understand what it is that he's fully saying at that time. And I would even say, like, going to destroy or or you will be destroyed. Like, Isaiah may not know who it's going to be. God told, I mean, like, this was a person that went to the throne room and said, yes, Lord, I will do your bidding. And, you know, God's telling him how to speak and what to say. He doesn't necessarily understand everything. He's just repeating it and making sure it's written down. I think there is an aspect of that, Justin, that I would concur with you. Yep. But I think that when you transition to verse 2, and he's saying, Yahweh, be gracious to us, I think that's his heartfelt... That like that's him. That's <clears throat> I think understanding inspiration of scripture is mind-boggling. That is to say, how do the authors maintain their unique personalities, knowledges, culture, all the context that they write in? Paul's different from Peter, Peter's different from Paul, James is different from Peter and Paul, John's completely different from <laughs> From uh, all of them, you know, you can see that in the writings. So we're seeing all of who they are, yep. and yet what they write is divinely inspired, <clears throat> which is pretty inconceivable. You know, Paul writes multiple letters to the Church of Corinth. We only have two of them, but most think there are at least four, maybe more. And yet this is inspired and this is not. I think Paul knows when he's inspired and when he's not. At least once, but then he was wrong. <laughs> I mean, because it's the, it's the one chapter where he says, "I say this," and he really, he really believes that it's his opinion and not God's. Yeah. But yet, it's contained in the Scripture. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he says this. I write to you. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like so, like I said. Like I said, he thought he was not being at that moment, but yet he was. I have a question on that. When he says, I not the Lord, is he talking specifically about the Lord Jesus, or was he talking about God? Well, I don't know of any other Lord. So, I guess what I've said it, I take it to mean that he's saying, I'm saying this, even though Jesus didn't say something about the Lord. I'm just saying he felt no weeding from God to say it. It seems like that, that he's just talking about, you know, like man to man. This is what I'm saying to you. But because when you read verse 2, CSB says, Lord, Yahweh, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our strength every morning. Our salvation 
in the time of trouble. That seems very heartfelt to me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it, it's, it's like seamlessly weaving from that which maybe he has no clue about, that which he does have a clue about. <clears throat> I don't know. It's really hard to, to wrestle with. <clears throat> Anyone else have a note on the verses 1, 2, or 3 there that you want to share with us? The CSB in verse 1 puts it both ways. Okay. That we've discussed. It talks about Sennacherib, and then it talks about the ultimate. The Satan. Yep. Okay. Sure. <coughs> verse 3, the peoples flee at the thunderous noise. The nations scatter when you rise in your majesty. Your spoil will be gathered as locusts are gathered, people will swarm over it like an infestation of locusts. Yahweh is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. There will be times of security for you, a storehouse of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of Yahweh is Zion's treasure. We're just going to sit in silence tonight, huh? I had trouble. I'm not going to lie. I had trouble like following as I was reading this aloud. It was like I could see it was just jumping so much. I had to like, oh, did I, did I make sure I did yeah. really transition to a totally different statement? Yeah. And I mean, I won't lie. I mean, when I think about things in biblical context, I'm like, well, maybe this is, I, this is one part of Isaiah. We didn't have the whole written sheets and we just had like pieces of parchment. And we started like patchworking it together, right? Because I don't necessarily see the flow. Um, but yeah, it's just it's very hard. It's very difficult to follow. Yeah. Yep. Anytime we read verses like this, it, it just reminds me. And he even talks. It reminds me about the fear of the Lord. And even that's what it comes down to at the end of verse six: the fear of the Lord. Proverbs talks about it a lot. And it's a this is reading the Bible is so important because it puts thing puts God in his proper context about how majestic he is. I mean, when you lift yourself up. Nations are scattered. I'll be honest, a lot of times I forget that aspect of God in my day-to-day life. And I can guarantee you, like most of society as well, you know, they don't have that fear of God. But when you read this, you can't help but be reminded about how awesome God is and how insignificant we are. And when you when you realize that, that puts that fear of God into you, it should anyway. And I, I think that's where the proper starting place is when you realize there is a God he is holy he is mighty woe is me but then when you bring Jesus into the picture and the salvation that he brings it just makes it that much more awesome hey Pastor Sean mm-hmm. I think um, my note from this, this study Bible says something on verses 2 through 9 as a whole and it says that it's a prayer that God would destroy Assyria um, which is interesting because it reminds me of you know the prayer that we talked about on Sunday, how we should be praying, uh, His kingdom would come. Yeah. Um, you know the destruction of the evil uh, to establish some peace. And I, on that note as well, in verse five, there's like a textual uh, difference because most people's verses uh, depends on the Bible it says uh, will fill Zion with righteous uh, with justice and righteousness. But mine says has filled past tense. And I looked up on Blue 
blue letter Bible why that would be, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but he says it's the perfect um, type, and it basically is saying that uh, typically refers to like past tense, like it's already been done, but um, because it's perfect, I guess the message would be that even if it hasn't happened yet, you should view it as already completed, which is interesting because I, I, at this time they would have been uh, there was hope in that, even though it hasn't happened. We know that it's an assured thing. Good point. That's interesting, Pastor. Yeah. How does this compare with John, First John four, where where there is no fear in love? Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. Are you talking about the fear of the Lord in verse 6? So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. No, I'm saying in Isaiah. Are you talking about verse 6 of Isaiah? Is it a transitional thing between the new covenant and the old? That there's a difference in in the way we can stand before God? Is it one of the effects of the new covenant? Mm. What do you mean whenever you say one of the effects? Like, what is your. Uh... Well, the old, the Mosaic law always left the taste of death. Mm. But the new covenant brings the joy of life. Yeah. That's an effect. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if this is one of the effects, too, that we no longer dread the judgment of the Lord because we don't stand condemned. And we oh, have I that see. Confidence. Yeah. So then we can have a perfected love because we're not consistently waiting and watching year after year a day of an atonement take place. That makes sense. There's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. Because they, they were still seeing and fearing punishment. Mm. Because that's what the sacrifices always reminded them of. <clears throat> I would just go back. I mean, I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means. I would just go back and maybe try to rephrase what I was saying before. But if you look at verse 5 and 6, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on, and this is Isaiah, uh, for he dwells on high. Mm-hmm. Got it. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. Okay? And he will be the stability of your times. That's like a good thing. You know, yeah. justice and righteousness, good things. Abundance of salvation, good thing. Wisdom, good thing. Knowledge, good thing. Okay. Where are they getting that from? What is, what is the, the spring, you know, where that comes from? The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. So I don't think the fear of the Lord in verse 6 is referencing, like, the fear of judgment. It's, it's putting that in the context of God being their salvation and their hope. I think the fear of the Lord is kind of what I was trying to articulate before. It's the God of the universe. The, the one who created, spoke everything into existence. You know, that we picture, unfortunately, now with the guy on flip-flops and everything. It's it's not who God is. God is holy. He is righteous. He is mighty. And so instead of the word 
fear, what word would you put in there, Josh? I think fear is the perfect word. Reference. I think fear is... Oh. It means you're holding in and all of him. You're being amazed. For sake of, like, for sake of, like, defining the term better, though. Oh. Are we gonna... Do we understand how awesome God is? Do we understand that, or, 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 or I mean, it's, the Bible like articulates it like very clear, and then we try to redefine that word. It's like, well, reverence, like it's it's the fear of like a proper, healthy fear of God, of how awesome and how mighty. There's no, no even iota of flippancy or arrogance. I mean, Isaiah was, a, a, from what you tell, a godly man, but when he got in the presence of God, he was like, whoa. I mean, and it wasn't, I don't know, I just, I feel that we need to have uh, more, I do, maybe, I mean, it's just me, but like, I feel like I need to have more fear of God in my life. I fear, I feel that if I had that, all the other things would kind of align better. I do, I, I, have, I have that same question, though, with this. It, it almost looks like we're talking, we went from Assyria like he's talking to Assyria, like Assyria will be destroyed in this in this right here. He's talking now to the uh, the Israelites, and you know this is hey, they're still they were getting ready to go to Egypt, right? They were still talking to the Egyptians, and he's like, look, fear the Lord, right? Yeah. He's gonna give yeah. you these things. Just yeah. have that right fear, reverence, fear in the Lord, and this is what he's already promised. Because I, I like what Blake said too that uh, the Hebrew translation. He's already filled with <coughs> justice and righteousness. All you have to do is continue to have reverence and fear, and you will live in a time of stability yeah. and have salvation and wisdom. Yeah. Well, there's also the fear of the Lord that brings us to repentance, but there's also the goodness of the Lord that brings us to repentance. The theme of the Old Testament is the fear of the Lord, which is why every person thought they were going to die when they saw an angel. We go to the covenant of grace, and there's more of the grace of God, but even John in Revelation was going to fall, felt as if he were dead. So yeah, God exactly. being immutable yeah. never changes. Yeah. But we see God through two different lenses. Yeah. One through the Old Testament with fear. <coughs> Although he doesn't change the New Testament, we see it more through the covenant of grace with mm-hmm. both. And we realize that perfect love, that we have unconditional love, that he's still a holy God. Yeah. And it's like trying to understand the Trinity. Almost kind of <coughs> with both. Here's lexicon says that um, in this verse, the fear of God is reference to reverence and piety yeah. towards God. The the word fear here is uh, the Greek, uh, the Hebrew word. I don't know how to say it. Yura, whatever. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 111, uh, 111 and ten. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The good understanding have all those who do His commandments. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Well, no, you're fine. I say what I needed to say. You know, the, in, in Old Testament times when they prayed, how did they pray? They prayed prostrate with the face to the dirt. Yeah, that's, that's complete submission. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're talking about here. You fear the Lord means you completely submissive to Him and you're willing to obey. You're not just hearing it, but you're actually going to do it. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so in verse 7 when it says, Listen, they're warriors. What other translations do we have besides that? Brave men. What? Brave men. Valiant. So whose brave men are those? Theirs. Opposite of ours. So mm-hmm. the enemies. Whoever's Syria, that's Syria. So we're we're back to talking about the opposition. Yeah, he's the opposition. back and forth. Yeah, it does seem like that, right? 
Their warriors cry loud in the streets. The messengers of peace weep bitterly. The highways are deserted. Travel has ceased. An agreement has been broken. Cities despised. The human life disregarded. The land mourns and withers. Lebanon is ashamed and wilted. Sharon is like a desert. Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will rise up, says the Lord. Now I will lift up, lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You. Alright, who's the you now? <clears throat> you will conceive chaff. You will give birth to stubble. Your breath is fire that will consume you. The peoples will be burned to ashes like thorns cut down and burned in fire. You who are far off, hear what I have done. You who are near, know my strength. All right, who's the you? So coming back to verse 1. Yeah, again. I think 10 was a really good transition line. You said verse 1? Because he uses the same language that that the breath of fire will consume you. I mean, if you look at 7 through 9, though, it's he's going through the list of things like the land and mourns, no regard for man, Sharon's a desert, all of this has happened, and then it stops. Now, says the Lord, I will lift myself up. I'm done. Yeah, in 7, the ESV study Bible said that the heroes were Judah soldiers. Yeah, see, I know, that's the... But then you go back to verse 6. That's clearly not the same you. All right, there will be times of security for you. That you is who? Which one? Which verse? Six. Because it talks about a storehouse for salvation, right? And the knowledge, which does not seem just like the same you. So that you seems to be Israel. Right. And then he switches to behold their heroes. So he's talking to Israel and he says, behold their heroes cry. So in verse 10, I will rise up. Is he rising up in judgment? Is he rising up taking vengeance? Is that what he's doing there? I mean, it appears he's getting ready to do something. <clears throat> the peoples will be burned to ashes like thorns cut down and burning fire. You who are far off, in verse 13, hear what I, I have done. You who are near, know my strength. Verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling seizes the ungodly who among us dwell with consuming fire. Is the Zion in verse 14 and the Zion in verse 5 the same? I think it's the same place, but different. I think it's uh, more specificity in verse 14 about people that are in that group. I mean... I would imagine that sinners would be terrified of righteousness. So if Zion's filled with righteousness, then they would be terrified because they can see their sin clearly now. But which Zion is that? Exactly. I would imagine. That's what I asked. one Zion, there can be no sinners. It says, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. In verse 5, what Zion is that? Future Zion. Yeah, in the ESV, it's, it's just like what uh, Blake was talking about earlier. For the ESV, it's a uh, future tense. Yeah. He will fill Zion. And then uh, 
page 14 is present tense. The sinners in Zion are afraid. All right, so in one chapter, can Zion refer to two different things, or does yeah. it have to be consistent? Yeah. Yeah. It can refer to two different things. We can support it. What? If it, if it has support, I wouldn't just randomly pick personally. Like, oh, yeah, this is because I mean, then I come back to the whole, yeah, this is what this means, this is what this means. I would want to have something, some grounds to be like, this is the reason why. Kind of like uh, when we talked about Ezekiel, I thought it was an amazing layout. And um, it's easy for somebody to say this references the future, yeah. <laughs> but right. And so, but once you start pulling that thread, it's like, well, it doesn't really stand up to it. And so, I think same here, I would have to, I would have to dig a little deeper to understand. Potentially the and another fair argument is that you know the already but not not yet he he said earlier in Isaiah right. that I've set my king on on Zion's hill yeah that's what we're talking about right yeah and so I mean we recognize that as being Christ and you know whenever he was set on Zion's hill is that also the same time that he filled it with righteousness you know what I'm saying. <laughs> And so it's it's much more I don't want to say complicated, but it's requires it's not a simple answer. It requires a lot of thought, I think. It is complicated. Go, Travis. Just uh, a comment. There were no chapters and verses when uh, Isaiah wrote this. And it's interesting because um, I think prophet. I think somebody mentioned earlier the prophets when they're talking. I mean, they're a mouthpiece for God, but they may not cognitively grasp everything that they're saying. So we're seeing images. Just like in Revelation, seeing images, being able to speak those images, but where do they land? It's inspired. It brings up a good point. I really like what Deborah said last week, which is that behold in the first uh, the first chapter. You had the 31 that was uh, woe, 32 was behold, and then you have ah. And it's just, you can see naturally where the author starts to break down the verse, where we as modern day um, are breaking down adding chapters and verses because it's so prominent that you see this like break in the language and this transition. And so we started today with ah, moving from that behold. Well, according to my study Bible, chapter 33 begins with the sixth word. Break it down that way. What Bible do you have? Uh, CSB uh, 28, 1, 29, 1, 29, 15, 30, verse 1, 31, verse 1, and then 33, 1. I would have never thought about that had you not bring, brought it up, though, Pastor Sean, about it being a different or same zone. Well, somebody said that in verse 5, their translation says it's future people build Zion. And Ashby 95 says he has filled Zion. Yeah. It's already done, fulfilled. And then verse 14, sinners in Zion are terrified. It's present tense. If, if, if I had to pick a team right now, I would say that <laughs> verse 5 is a heavenly Jerusalem. And verse 14 is a earthly Jerusalem. Yeah. Pastor Sean, my, um, I have a side note. It says verse 14 uh, correlates with Hebrews 12.29. So I'm just going to say what it says. I don't know much about it. but um, So I'm going to go back to 28. It says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with 
with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Hmm. So it mentions fire and also reverence and fear. And, so and, I don't and know if that's what was your reference? What verse? Uh, Hebrews twelve twenty nine yeah. okay. or 14, verse fourteen because of the consuming fire. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So that, that you know, whoever wrote Hebrews could have seen this as being a future fulfillment. Obviously. Who among us can dwell with ever burning flames? The one who lives righteously and speaks rightly, who refuses profit from extortion whose hand never takes a bribe, who, who stops his ears from listening to murderous plots, shuts his eyes against evil schemes. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the rocky fortresses. His food provided, his water assured. So what am I supposed to get out of that? Well, this is a time where Israel is about to be overrun and destroyed, so it can't be literal, I don't think. There'll be a remnant. To me, it seems like he's contrasting different books um, from 14 to 16. Like, verse 14 talks about those who are sinning and yep. being godless and how they should be afraid. And then in 15 and 16, it shows the ones that don't need to be afraid um, They're if they're trusting in the Lord, which kind of to me correlates to, if you look back at now. Uh, verse 5 and 6, um, those are the ones, those people that are the are the ones that would not be afraid, whereas verse 2 through 4, I know, 2 through 4 are the ones that shouldn't be afraid. God would be gracious to them. Versus verse 1, those people should be afraid because they're not with the Lord. But it was interesting how, Deb, you just said, trust in the Lord. That's what you said, right? But where did you read that at? Yeah, I just extracted it. Right. Yeah. And how much of that is because of our New Covenant theology just coming through? Because in the text, he describes the one who lives righteously, speaks rightly, refuses profit from how? Extortion. Whose hand never takes a bribe. Verse 15 who stops his ears from listening to murderous plots, verse 15, shuts his eyes against evil schemes. So he has outlined one, two, three, four, five, six descriptions of what? Righteousness. Yes. And it's all what? Behavior. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. It's all behavior. I would say just... Uh, support some of what she said though is you know verses five and six talking about the fear of the lord being that that person's treasure um at least the nasby says his treasure and then the knowledge of hey this judgment is going to come against assyria and our trust is in this future promise of um basically hey this is an assured victory so i mean it doesn't say trust but i think that it's implied that the person uh, fears the Lord and trusts the Lord. It makes me think of Psalm 1. Okay. When I read the description of this verse 15, 
I'm not arguing against the idea of that this person doesn't trust the Lord. Yeah. What I am saying, though, is that he's outlined five characteristics of that person who trusts in the Lord. Yeah. And they're all righteous manifestations of behavior. And they all relate directly or indirectly to loving your neighbor. Yep. Mm-hmm. How you treat others. Yep. Go, Travis. It, uh, it echoes like Psalm 15 is another one where it almost gives you the uh, requirements to who may dwell in your sacred blameless in your walk, righteous, each truth. So it's kind of a similar overlap with, um, with this. It's almost God's given a picture or standard of walking righteously. My, my point is. <clears throat> True conversion yeah. always results in fruit that is measurable, quantifiable, yeah. can be seen in the way we love others and love God. But we have created a category of people that don't exist in the Bible. These are people who have had their little talk with Jesus and then never manifest any righteousness for the rest of their lives. And then the preacher preaches them into heaven at their funeral. This is common. This is everywhere. You know? I mean, when was the last time you showed a friend? You know, I'm really positive guys in hell. I mean, you can't say that, right? I mean, you, you, that, that would just be... Yeah, I mean, you can't say that, right? I mean, you can't, you can't say. Based on an honest and objective assessment of his life, I've concluded he's probably in hell. Uh, those your friends you just say remember your memories of them yes and just leave it at that don't say anything about eternity I'm just trying to draw your attention to the fact that in the middle of this very confusing chapter is an all out assault on behavior that is impacting the most potentially Victims of a society. And and the way he describes this. Profit from how? Extortion. Taking a bribe. Listening to a murderous plot. Evil schemes. I kind of go back to what Josh said, though. This I think it all ties back, Pastor. What was in the back of my head is fear. Fearing God. We know that we're sinful people at our core. Right? But it's that rightful reverence and fear of what God has told us to do and how to act, right? And it all transitions to behavior. And that's kind of what I was thinking about was this, this past Sunday sermon is just that that, that right, right response to the fear and reverence of God is usually manifest in behavior. You know, when, I, when I read this, I try to put on the Old Testament hat. Right. And, and I, I wanted, since they didn't have it written, it was oral, I wonder about the impact that a verse like this would have on the people that were listening. Yeah. Uh, I, and I try to think about it in that in those terms. Because, you know, he's, he's talking about verse 14 to kind of go based off of what you're saying, sir. It's like, sinners in Zion are terrified. Mm-hmm. On and on and on. And then, boom, he switches over, which is awesome, the poetry here, and starts talking about um, perfection. Yeah, here's here's the hope for those who walk rightly. Yes. Yes, here's the sinners, but on the opposite spectrum, 
verse seven, uh, verse sixteen. Here's your hope, and here's how you're yeah. supposed to walk that out. Yeah. So, um, just kind of thinking about this whole chapter for me, it sounds like, like you said, Pastor Shine can be now or also later, but. Um, so it sounds like it's a dual thing for me anyway. Like, for example, Assyria, um, they've been treacherous. They have been, um, I don't know if they've attacked Judah yet at this point or not. I don't know. But it sounds like Isaiah is praying to God. And my notes say that this is possibly the remnant that's praying to God. And then God responded with, um, if you're bad, basically you're going to be punished. But the good will, you know, will be rewarded. That's what it seems like to me. Yes, and the only thing that I'm trying to clarify there is that the one who trusts in Yahweh, going back to what Deborah says, or to go with what Josh said, the one who fears in Yahweh, or the one that is in a right relationship with Yahweh, yes, has this type of behavior associated with his life. Mm-hmm. And then he's promised in verse 16, he will dwell on the heights his refuge will be the rocky fortress, his food provided, his water assured. Now, although that doesn't say eternal life, that's as good as it gets yeah. in a combat environment as bad as what this chapter is describing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. These things. You have a rocky fortress, you have food, and you have water. What more do you need in this type of day and age of this Assyria attacking than those things. I mean, isn't the, the, the clefts and the rocks the most difficult to get to and to take down from a combat perspective? Yeah. Uh, assaulting that. Think about the Rangers that uh, uh, Point de Hoc was it in, um, in, in France, right? Normandy. Normandy. Normandy, right. And mm-hmm. just incredibly difficult <coughs> portions to get to. Straight up. Right. And, and this is quite the promise. Verse 17, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. You will see a vast land. Your mind will meditate on the past terror. And then look at these three descriptions. Where is the accountant? Where is the tribute collector? Where is the one who spied out our defenses? So let's just pause for a minute and see if we can get some better contextual understanding of those three things. Once, once, once the king is seen, the, you're thinking, you're meditating on. That's what it says here. Your your heart will meditate on terror. Once you see the king, these things no longer exist. Where are they? Right. And what does each one? Let's just make sure that we grasp it. Let's look at our different translations. The CSB lays out three things. Where is the accountant? Where is the tribute collector? Where is the one who spied out our defenses? Um, Evan, what does your NIV say? Where's the chief officer? Where's the one who took the revenue? Where's the officer in charge of I think that NASB has a good one. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? Well, King James here says, every Assyrian official was a terror to the people. The scribe who determines the amount of tribute due, the receiver who weighed the gold and silver brought, and he that counted the towers, the one making plans for a siege. Okay, so in verse 18, what do you take away from that verse? Come on, grab someone who hasn't talked. What are you supposed to take away from that verse? The adversarial type of um, 
professional from the Italians, well, there will be no such thing in the New Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, good, good. So I'm trying to get you to understand how the author communicates. He takes the most contextually relevant, culturally relevant thing that you can imagine. Yeah. And then he applies it to a, a whole realm in the future. And that present as well. It will be. I'm not sure about that piece. Oh, really? The I'm, next verse says, you will no longer see future tense. Yeah. Okay, the only reason I say that is because in my study Bible, and that Yeah, what's wrong. it say? It says, uh, every Assyrian official was a terror to the people. Um, or, sorry, 17 through 24, the Lord's victory over Sennacherib is a foretaste of his universal dominion over the world. Okay, a foretaste. Yeah. Sure, a foretaste. But let's remember, these same Israelites that we're talking about here, and I'm sorry for cutting you off, Caleb, but in, in just a little bit, and I say a little bit like 600 years, right, they're going to be in bondage to Rome. Mm-hmm. And every single thing that's just described yeah. in these three lines are the Romans. Then you're Caesars. What are Caesars? All right. Well, why are the uh, tax collectors so hated? Why are the Jewish tax collectors so hated? Traitors. Right. Yeah. Because they're traitors. And they're extortionists. Right. Yeah. It's almost like the reoccurrence of these things helps you know that it hasn't happened yet. I mean, you won't be able to not know that it hasn't happened when it does happen, but... It's like, oh, not there yet. We're okay, still- well, what we do know in a general sense is that we don't have anything as glorious as this. Yeah, all right. Okay, the Babylons come in. We go into 70 years of captivity. All of Israel scattered all over the place. Even in Peter's day, we're still writing to the 10 tribes, the scat- tribes scattered, right? The Judeo remnant is maintained for 70 years. They go back, but they don't ever get a king again. You understand that, right? right? It's only governors at this point. And then you go into the intertestament period, and the intertestament period is not a glorious time for no, Israel. The Maccabean Wars. There's war after war after war, and then you roll into what? Roman. The Roman Empire. Yeah. Okay, so if you want to know why they're looking for a Messiah to do all that. Well, they got a prophecy right here that says this is going to be gone. Yeah. And they're expecting Jesus, King Jesus, to roll up his sleeves. What? Right. And free them. Right. I mean, let's go all the way to the New Testament. Jesus says he's going to die. And Peter says, oh, no, you're not. (laughs) That is not happening. I have no idea what you think you're doing. And then he gets the incredible rebuke, right? Mm-hmm. What's the rebuke? Satan. It's almost like in verse 17, you need a, your eyes will see the king in his beauty, and then a, a PS, wait 2,300 years or however long it takes. Well, at this time, weren't they yeah. kind of already a vassal state? Yes. So, they, so, because my mind was going toward the Romans, that they probably had to have Assyrian officials taking money from them. And so that was where my mind was going, that they probably already had accountants that were there. They had to have people spying on their defense to make sure they were rising up. So they would have been living this in this moment. Just think we lose World War II and we become a German nation and we have Germans in every city that are collecting taxes and mailing it back to Germany. How much do you redneck Americans in this room hate those Germans? Come on, Chris. (laughs) You ready to kill him? 
<clears throat> yeah. You have fun down in the swamp bottoms. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, we can't lose sight of the not Christian nationalism, but the Judeo nationalism that was there. All right. Part of those band of disciples are the zealots. Yeah. All right. What are the zealots? Assassins. They're the nationalists. They're the assassins. Yeah. They're the terrorists. At this time, will you uh, return or the kingdom come? <laughs> That's why they're asking so frequently. Yeah, they're and then, asking. And then go into hiding as soon as yeah. Go into hiding as soon as Jesus is killed because he's Peter. They're crushed. Yeah, they're crushed. Right. So we're just grasping the idea how how the Bible is written within a context, and yet in that context. We extract application out of it. Verse 19, you will no longer see the barbarians, a people whose speech is difficult to comprehend, who stammer in a language that is not understood. Look at Zion, the city of our festival times. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful pastor, a tent that does not wander, a tent pegs that will not be pulled up, nor will any of its cords be loosened. Now look at all that just practical um, imagery. Imagery, right? But all of it represents something much larger, mm-hmm. right? Now Zion. Ten pegs will not be pulled up. Okay. Right, but but all of us, or, or many of us at least, have been on a camping trip and just can't get those tent stakes. To stay in the ground, either because it's too wet or whatever. How many of you ever put up a tent in the rain? Okay. We used to go to um, Sebago Lake in uh, Maine. Every year we went camping, and this was way before we could afford, like, not we, me as a kid, not me, Austin and Pam, me as a kid. And we would go up there. And you had your campsite from Friday to whatever the next Friday was. And if you pulled in that Friday and it was raining... You just put up your tent in the rain. I mean, because it, it had to get up, you know? Mm-hmm. And we're, 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 we couldn't all stay in the car. So, you know, you pull it and you, you mash it in there and then you pull too hard and then the thing comes out. And am I like, no one can relate to this uh, imagery at all? Okay, good. There's a handful of you that can. You haven't been in the army long enough, obviously. Um, I'm going to ask, I had, I, in my mind, when I see this, though, I, I think even uh, different. I think like when we transition from tents, the hard structures in like Afghanistan and Iraq. And so I'm in my mind, I'm trying to place, you know, where are we at in the hard structure? Because they were wandering people, right? So we're in Jerusalem. Like how much is hard yeah. structure versus how much is still tents? Most of it's still tents. And that's what I'm saying. So we go from this concept of, you know, wandering people to you're going to go to solid structure. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's another way that I kind of visualize it. That's, Sure. 06, 07 Afghanistan. Right, but we're supposed to we're supposed to create everyone in the room. We're supposed to create mental images yep, yep. of what we see, yep. and then try to grab what does the author want me to relate that to. It's, it's you know what this this imagery. What am I supposed to see? Well, and I think that in verse twenty one it says a place of rivers and wide canals. You know, whenever you hear about how where Eden is located, there's all these different rivers around it, and uh, I just and it says that there's no ships going through or anything like that. That's the imagery that I'm seeing. It's okay. a place of perfection. There's no need to move your tent anymore. 
Look at Zion, the city of our festival times. Your eyes will see. What's he say? All right, what Jerusalem? Yeah. Right. Clearly, it has to be the new Jerusalem. A peaceful pasture, a tent that does not wander. Its tent pegs will not be pulled up, nor will any of its cords be loosened. For the majestic one, our Lord, will be there. He just keeps going there. Going there. Place of rivers, broad streams, where ships that are rowed will not go. Now, ships that are rowed. Okay, what kind of ships are those? Warships. Yes, warships. That's exactly right. That's exactly what they. Oh and wow, that's in my like too far out of context to think that we're talking potentially about it. When we're drawing the visual to the Jewish people of a garden. Yeah, I, I would say that we are definitely going so, to that garden or that garden. Yeah. But I mean, again, if you're the Jewish reader in that time and you're reading that, where your your rivers and streams are uninhabited land around it, no warships are going through it. It's starting to sound like your garden. Yeah, I mean, chapter 34 goes right into Armageddon, too. So, I mean, it's interesting how he's talking about this this judgment on Assyria. Here's your future hope, and here's, you know, here's how it's going to end as well. It's just a, I mean, the, the like you said, the verse division, or the chapter divisions are frustrating at times, but they're super helpful as well. But it's all connected, at least for me this section is okay look at verse 22 for the three branches of government (laughs) (laughs) do you see it right amen right and it's all going to be Yahweh yeah for the Lord is our judge the Lord is our lawgiver the Lord is our so we have the judicial branch, we have the legislative branch, and we have the executive branch, and it's all Yahweh. He's doing it all. He will save us. 23 was very difficult for me. I wrestled with that this morning. And yeah, I was going to say. I just was like, what is he talking about now? Your ropes are slack. They cannot hold the base of the mask or spread out the flag. What the... Sam, what's the uh, King James Bible say about that? Let's see if we can get some uh, study note that... Anybody got a MacArthur one? He's the Pope also. We should check. <laughs> Where's your... Justin, you have a MacArthur right? Okay, no, you have... Like that. Okay. Does he have any good notes on uh, 23? In her own strength, Jerusalem is as helpless to defend herself as a ship deprived of its ropes and pulleys that cannot sail. The weak city defeats the invaders with the Lord's enablement. Okay. Anybody else? What do you have? Uh, does CSB have a note on that? Uh, it appears that the pronouncement changes the addressee. Your must refer to the enemy who tries to capture the people of God. The ship imagery may point to their ships that try to assail Zion, but rather than taking plunder away, even though laying among God's people will receive a portion. The rabbi King James says, The overthrow of the Assyrians is compared to a shipwreck so complete that even the land could loot the attackers. Okay. He says, God's people in themselves are like a drifting cult of a ship. But then, even the lame will take the prey. God's sin-sick people will be forgiven their iniquity. Wow. Yep. Wow, wow, wow. All right, and then, verse 23. I mean, 24. Sorry, 24. And none will say, 
I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. All right, where does where do you go now when you see that will be forgiven their iniquity? Where's your mind going right there? The cross. All right, the cross. Revelation 21. Anybody else? Revelation 21 because of the word dwell. And also the tree of life. Because the sleeves heal the nations. Okay, sure. What about the very last of it, though? Forgiven the iniquity. Yeah, where do you go with that? I already said it. Where? The cross. I mean, you can't be in... I, I don't know. I don't know if it's just poetic language, but you have to be forgiven your iniquity before. Yeah, you yeah, 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 yeah. Go ahead. What are you saying? I was just saying you have to be forgiven your iniquity before you go to the the kingdom. Yeah. Let's go to Jeremiah thirty-one because I want the whole church to know it inside and out. Thirty-one. What? Thirty-one. 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 Where Blake? 31, 31, and 34. Yes, all the way through. I was just giving you an opportunity to redeem yourself. <laughs> For what? Anything, just life in general. Okay? <laughs> Not sitting at the right place at church. There are multiple things that you need redemption for, okay? Yeah. Right. Yeah, probably say, uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. I, I choose to use the chainsaw. Oh, uh, Hearing you read the word of God fires me up, so start with verse 31. Let's read the 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, verse 33. But this covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 34. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted you to see how the end of 33 is another new covenant promise right there. <clears throat> Am I also mistaken? Is it like, are we getting to it in Isaiah like 53? Yeah. Cru- you know, crush our iniquity. Yeah, yeah. We're getting there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. So there has to be where? Where's there have to be? Yeah, it's got to be the New Jerusalem. Exactly. It's got to be the New Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anybody have a question? Comment? Jerry, thanks for uh, speaking up so much tonight. We were one chapter a week past here until the end of this book. Yes. Then we're going to something much different. <laughs> First Samuel. Narrative. I had to be you. Chapter two. All right, 34 next week. Please study it. Come with some notes.